We acknowledge the traditional landowners of this country. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We would particularly like to acknowledge the traditional landowners of the land on which we stand. I am on Wiradjuri land. Tam stands on the land of the Dharawal people and Laurie on the land of the Tarabal people. We express our great gratitude in sharing this land with you. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast, everyone. Um, We've got day, day, see, look, what a great start. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Rachel, are you doctor? You are doctor. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, well, we have Dr. Rachel Werman with us. She's a licensed physical therapist in the United States, which is a physiotherapist here in Australia and Canada. She has extensive clinical and teaching experience in both musk and pelvic health physiotherapy. She has worked as a musculoskeletal and pelvic health provider in private outpatient settings and most recently held a senior physical therapy position as a pelvic health provider in the women's health and urology clinics of a large medical foundation in North California. I nearly said Carolina, California. She has held part-time and adjunct faculty positions at both California State University, as well as clinical lecturer position at the University of California at the Davis School of Medicine Division of Pain Medicine. She received her BS in biopsychology, which is not the BS I thought. I'm assuming it's Bachelor of Science. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Bachelor of Science in Biopsychology with an emphasis in visual neuroscience and a minor in exercise and health science. My goodness. Her master's in physical therapy and her doctorate in physical therapy. So the DPT, hence, this is where the doctor comes from, right? Correct. Yep. And because that's not enough, <laughs> she's now currently here in Brisbane at UQ doing her PhD. So she's a PhD candidate with a focus on pelvic health outcome measures and male pelvic health. Now I have to also add this, which wasn't in your bio, because I sit back and watch you do all of this work. Um, And really, I think people need to know that on top of all this and doing your PhD here, you are overseas. You have no direct family support or husband here because COVID messed all of this up at the same time as being a mother to the cutest little man. You are a bloody superwoman. Oh my goodness. So welcome, <laughs> Rachel. Thanks welcome. you guys for having me on the podcast, something that Lori and I have talked about for a while, but um, well, this systematic review has <laughs> been my life and has taken a lot more time than I anticipated. So here we are. (laughs) We finally made it happen. And that's exactly what we are going to talk about today. Um, So you're going to talk about the recently published mammoth of a systematic analysis of I think 151 articles. And the title is evidence for increased tone or overactivity of pelvic floor muscles in pelvic health conditions which you were first author of, and then your co-authors were Ryan Stafford, David Cowley, Caroline Baldini, and Professor Paul Hodges. What a team and what a task. So we will, maybe we'll just start, if you can tell us what motivated you to try and sort out our understanding of pelvic floor muscle tone. We don't even know what that is now. (laughs) 
um, well, the motivation for this, I think kind of stemmed from clinical interest. I think the concept of tone has plagued me for a while. And I think a lot of us really, I can recall one of the entry-level pelvic health core courses that I took in the United States where tone and pain were introduced. And I remember after the course reading and rereading the supplementary material on tone and just kind of scratching my head. (laughs) And then Later, when I took another core course, uh, Holly Herman happened to be teaching this one. The topic of tone came up again. And I remember sitting in the back of the class, because that's how I roll. I sit in the back of the class, but I raise my hand and ask a lot of questions. (laughs) Um, So I'm sitting in the back of the class asking why um, our discussions around tone were so disjointed. And I said something to the effect of, well, somebody should do something about that. (laughs) Never thinking that I'd be doing some of this work. But I I worked in a private practice setting for seven years where everyone was trained and practicing very similarly. And we didn't really pass our patients around unless necessary. And when we did, it was pretty seamless because of the commonality and practice patterns. And there was a common language. Then I moved into a large medical foundation hospital system in Northern California, where there were a lot of pelvic health providers. And it was common that patients shifted between providers for many reasons. And this is where I got really frustrated with the concept of tone. Everyone was using different ways to describe tone. I think probably the most common that I saw were trigger points. Mm. And trigger points, I mean, it was just in all of the notes, um, as if trigger point was an outcome measure for digital palpation. For instance, trigger point, present or not present. So yes or no, a dichotomous sort of outcome measure which doesn't really tell us anything. I guess based on the definition of trigger point, it tells us there's a top band, but it doesn't detail if there was pain or not, because sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't by definition. And it doesn't detail where pain referral is located. So it just never made sense to me. And I think if we think about what people think trigger points are, it is tone and pain and subjective reported referral patterns. Those are the measures really. At the time I was working at this hospital, we were tasked by the hospital with having consistent note templates so that there was consistency in care. So we had these annual meetings every year with all the pelvic floor therapists. And um, I was kind of so frustrated with it that I actually did this brief handout on teasing out pain scores from tone scores and referral pattern subjective reports. And I created a scale at that time to help everybody get on the same page especially the new physios, where it's really difficult to know, are you feeling high tone or moderate tone or minimal tone? And essentially this scale was the reasoning scale, um, but nobody was using the reasoning scale at the time. Um, But what I did was kind of take that beyond and sort of provided a picture with descriptions based on um, how tone might feel at the thenar eminence, which is a common practice that is uh, urologists used um, to describe how a prostate should feel. So I just kind of added to that. I also presented some commentary about the definition of tones at that time. And what I was really fascinated with was in the definition of tone, um, it talks about how tone doesn't go away when we sleep. And so at that time, I also discussed the importance of sleep hygiene and tone and But I guess the overarching theme I was picking up on is that there really wasn't a great understanding of the topic in clinical practice. 
In the paper, you mention a few components of tone, so the active <laughs> and the passive components, which I do think um, does, you know, it's amazing to break that down. Could you talk a bit more about that? Basically, muscle tone is made up of some combination of active plus passive tone. And the active tone is sometimes called myoelectric or neurogenic. Um, those are the other terms, but they're synonymous. And that's mediated by the nerve activity at the spinal and cortical levels. Passive tone is sometimes called viscoelastic or mechanical tone. And that's independent of the neural activity. And it's related to the mechanical properties of muscle fibers and the surrounding connective tissue and even the fluid content. So when you, when, if you didn't have any active tone, um, maybe in some sort of a, um, you know, spinal cord injury, um, you would still feel some resistance when you push into the muscle mm -hmm. and that's all the connective tissue and fluid content, et cetera. There's an assumption there that if there is pain, there is greater tone. And that's one of the biggest issues. And so that's why I say you, we really have to sort of break down the measures. Well, the modified Oxford scale is a, is a scale of strength. It's not, a, it's not a measure of tone. I think clinically, you know, when we use a modified Oxford scale strength and we feel less movement and we maybe give that a lower score, strength score, it's sometimes interpreted as, well, that's possibly indica indicative of greater tone because the resting tone was greater to start with. And yes. I think that's the caveat. And that's what we really have to understand is that the modified Oxford scale is not really interpreted, interpretable as a measure of tone. It's simply a strength measure. Um, you can put the pieces together. So mm. if you use the reasoning scale to um, measure uh, tone, so the resistance to the passive stretch when you push on the muscle, and then you have um, the patient do an active contraction and you give it a, a strength score and you say, oh, well, it seems as if at rest, this person has greater tone and they're also showing less strength. But, but how those are really related is not well understood. What, what is the raising scale? I don't know that I know that. Yeah. Um, so the raising scale is a seven point scale and um, it's a digital palpation scale. And basically zero is considered normal. And then plus one, plus two, plus three would be minimum, minimal, moderate, and maximal tone. And then it goes the opposite direction for lesser tone, minus one, minus two, minus three. There's also a scale for the ability to relax. That's a five-point scale. And then there's also a tone scale that is specific for the external anal sphincter, and that's a three-point scale. So it goes plus one, zero, minus one. Okay. Cool. We should know about this scale. hundred uh, percent. We should know about this scale. That's what <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking. This sounds very helpful. <laughs> How do you get on board with the, you know, all feeling that it's the same? Do you know, it's kind of like modified Oxford scale yeah. that is um, validated, but is it similar? Um, well, so that's, that's a really good question. And I guess let me, before I answer that, let me just kind of back up and talk about digital palpation scale. So 
Um, this systematic review extracted all of the ways that we um, measure tone. So the tools, so there's eight mm -hmm. different tool categories, and then I think it's like 131 different outcome measures from those eight oh, measures. And so an example of this is digital palpation is the tool. And then some of the outcome measures would be things like the reasoning scale. And out of that category uh, for digital palpation tools, the outcome measures for digital palpation, there are actually only four outcome measures that have reliability. None have validity. Two, two of those were outcome measures that fell under a category of relaxation after contraction. So somebody contracts their muscle and we measure their ability to relax after the contraction. That, that can be interpreted a lot of different ways. It's really a measure of relaxation, not of tone, mm. but we kind of think it's related. Then um, there were two scales that actually physically put pressure on, on a muscle. One of those is the DEET scale. But that scale is a bit problematic because it combines a lot of different things into, into one scale. So it incorporates the levator hiatus, the sort of the flexi lateral flexibility, um, pain, as well as I think it's a subjective um, response of the pressure. Mm. So really the only scale that we're left with is the reasoning scale. Um, and its reliability kind of is moderate. It sits at like 0.28 to 0.52 or something like that. Uh, don't, don't quote me, but, um, but you know, so it's, it's moderate reliability. However, um, Melissa Davidson recently wrote a paper, I think that came out in 2019 that really sort of challenged the reasoning scale. Um, and that paper is called, is it time to rethink using digital palpation for assessment of muscle stiffness? It's an interesting paper to really, to read. I think what really comes out of that paper is that therapists are really good at saying, uh, palpating and feeling for a very high tone and very low tone, but having a, being able to be reliable with really specific scaling, like three, two, one, um, we're not quite as good at. And also there are some issues that if, if a therapist, you know, sees uh, a referral from the doctor and it says pain, we have bias so that when we mm -hmm. go in and do our measurement, we're more likely to, to report a score of greater tone. 100%. You search for that tone, don't you? <laughs> if, you pain, like, if it's not there. <laughs> a day of like vaginally Paris women who have a lot of laxity and then you have like a normal individual. It's like, whoa, this is really high tone. But yeah. then maybe it's normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, can we talk about the words? I love all the words that <laughs> have been pulled out to talk about tone in this study, mm -hmm. hyperactive, overactive, tight, non-relaxing, so many different words that we all use. And um, I certainly do. That's for sure. I'm going to have to rethink my words, I think. Um, and some 
obviously are hinting at the more active component and others are hinting at more the passive component and some are hinting at both and some are just hinting at pain and not really any necessary tone. And everyone Um, means the same thing or what are they talking about? Like what should we do here, Rachel? What should we do? (laughs) What words should we use? (laughs) Um, Well, I, I think what we, this review helped us do is really whittle down to a couple of terms. And that is greater tone. And I guess the converse would be true, lesser tone. um, Although this, this systematic review was focused on concepts of, of greater tone. If we were to do a systematic review for lesser tone, um, my sense is that it would be a bit problematic just having looked at some of the papers because lesser tone is usually in the context of what the measures seem to be about strength and not so much tone. Hmm. We need to be in our language, differentiate between what measures we use. So if we talk about tone, we would be referring to combined measures of tone. So that's basically all of our measures except EMG. EMG is an active measure of tone. So when we talk about activity, so a lot of times the term overactivity is thrown around Hmm. and And a lot of times it's thrown around in the context of digital palpation. However, digital palpation is a combined measure of tone. It doesn't differentiate Mm -hmm. between active and passive properties of the muscle. So that's really confusing. So a very simple thing to do is um, if you're using EMG, talk about activity in your terminology. (laughs) If you're using any other measure, talk about tone, stay away from activity terms. The, the most recent International Continent Society terminology report for assessment talked about increased tone as being the best option, and that was based on expert consensus. However, this systematic review was able to determine that there is not enough normative data to be able to use the term increased tone. Mm-hmm. Because the word increased implies that you're making that comparison to to normative data, some sort of a a reference scale. It also is problematic when you're doing an initial evaluation, because if you say increased, increased from what? You've never seen the person before. But isn't greater the same thing? It's almost like a word that's a comparison word, or did you use that for a reason? So so that's a good question, Lori. Um, so, So greater allows us to compare between other individuals as a therapist, other, other individuals that we have seen. So this person seems to have greater tone than this person, but it's not a definite it's increased. Um, And we just don't have the normative data to be able to say that yet. So is it based off clinical experience then as in I've felt this person and this person and this person, and this one has greater tone than that one. Do you know what I mean? And the more you feel, the more you might be able to differentiate the the levels. (laughs) Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And, and I think that my brain would go there as well. However, um, the paper that I just talked about, Melissa Davidson's paper, is it time to rethink using digital palpation for assessment of muscle stiffness? Um, Actually, sort of debunked the idea that clinical experience um, allows you to be more accurate. They actually um, ranked the the assessors, the 
physical therapists by experience and they weren't more accurate, unfortunately. So <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> I thought age was finally getting on our side. Yeah, but no. I know. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Yeah, age and experience. I know. So I get we get that um, EMG clearly measures active tone, um, and otherwise the rest uh, are measuring both. Is there anything that can help us understand and differentiate between the two? There is no measure for passive tone. But the way that we might be able to glean some insight into that differentiation is if we combine an active measure, so EMG, with one of those other combined measures. Hmm. Um, So it's sort of a a relative (laughs) assessment that if you see higher activity on EMG um, and maybe normal tone with your digital palpation or with manometry, um, that you would expect or be more likely to be able to explain that um, that the higher tone is coming from the muscle activity. And then that actually is really nice information because it allows us to determine our treatment pathway more efficiently in that we're going to consider what we can do to intervene with the active property of tone, what's going on there, as opposed to just doing a whole bunch of passive stretching, you know, mm-hmm. dilators, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense mm-hmm. if, mm-hmm. if you're seeing normal tone on digital palpation, but higher activity on EMG. That's mm-hmm. right. So practically then for this patient cohort, are there studies using um, like anal probes to go vaginally or given that I imagine most vaginal probes would be quite tricky in a lot of cases to even insert. Yeah. So what you're really referring to is the concept of the provocation um, of, of tone um, and um, or perhaps provocation of pain that increases the tone in some way um, when you introduce that, you know, dilator or probe. And, and it is a problem with the measures. Um, that we're trying to get really close to the muscle for measurement, but that requires us to introduce these potentially provocating um, tools. Mm. Um, So yeah, there were times um, where um, I have more rarely, I would say, but um, where anal probes, because they are smaller, let's just talk about that for a second. So vaginal probes are usually larger than anal probes were, were used to, to measure, um, vaginal tone as opposed to just anal tone. One of the problems there, I guess, one of the questions, um, is that usually the reliability of that as a measure has been done with vaginal probes and not anal probes. So a lot of times these, so that the example that I'm giving where, uh, an anal probe was used, um, it hasn't been validated or cons- uh, tested for reliability in that application, if that makes sense. Yeah. If we treat the pelvic floor and make a change to its activity, then surely a lot of the tone was active in the first place. Make and a maybe change that to its tone quickly. Its greater tone is now it's lesser. Greater. and what we've done is treat the active component because there are times of course where you do that and it doesn't change the activity Mm. I'm just wondering now clinically if that is helpful way to help us differentiate 
um, I guess, the ratio of passive tone versus active tone in the one situation. So you're not necessarily using dilators then on pelvic mm. floors that could just relax off easier, quicker. What if they just felt more comfortable with you and then their guarding mechanism backed off rather than you releasing a trigger point? How comfortable? (laughs) No, but as in like from a a social context, they were more comfortable, understood what you're doing on the bed and their nervous system backed off and that's what relaxed it. This is why I'm like- But still, will that be active though? Well, I don't know, Because it's nervous system driven. Yeah, so um, I think that's a good point, Lori. And I think I've heard you talk about this on, uh, oh, maybe it was the podcast for ICS with Paul, where we you were talking about the um, the introduction of uh, you know a scary film <laughs> causing this increased activity oh, yeah. of the pelvic floor oh. muscles using EMG, mm-hmm. and um, and how that would. Um, potentially go down over time if you if you changed to a happier film perhaps right um something in the environment became less threatening mm. the, a lot of the stuff that in the study that you looked at that were using emg were these clinical settings or research settings because the measurement of that is different isn't it it's not necessarily different in that uh research settings are using some of the clinical probe, you know, the probes that we use in clinic, the difference in the studies, the the research studies that are less clinical is usually that how we process the EMG data. Hmm. These measures were certainly used in in clinical studies um, a fair amount, actually. And in fact, this review actually allowed all types of studies. So a lot of times systematic reviews are trying to just pull in the highest level studies, but we actually were interested in what was happening in clinics. So we allowed case reports into, into the review as well to get a glimpse of what's happening in the clinic. And theoretically, you know, a case report is our best foot forward. (laughs) Hmm. Um, So that, that actually resulted in some interesting findings. I'm sure it did. (laughs) (laughs) what random things are we making up in the clinic (laughs) yeah I know it's so clear in my mind though (laughs) so clear in your mind yeah you know I mean I think it was you know in in my mind you know working in the clinic as well um Mm. I have to say you know I'm a clinician for more years than I am a researcher that uh, 13 years I was in the clinic doing this and what it took for me to wrap my head around this. I mean, it's Mm. been three years, right. And I am still struggling with it to some degree. Right. Um, Mm. It's, it's, it's a massive um, complex issue. Oh, it's, it's nuts. Rachel, I take my hat off to you. I don't think I could, I don't think I could do it. I would be so confused (laughs) with all the different words and the, you know, like it is such a, it is such a confusing concept when you really get so simple, but yet so not. (laughs) It's it's extremely murky. And I think that I hope that how it came together in the end made it appear really simple, but Mm. it was murky it was extremely murky going through it. And um, it it has become a bit more clear to me, but 
there were days where I was extremely frustrated. And I, I think Paul kind of recognized that. And he's, he said to me at one point, there's a reason nobody has done this review before. <laughs> <laughs> Many have started. Why, no why did I do Why am I the one doing this? Um, and I, I, a lot of ways, I really shouldn't be, I'm not the, you know, I'm an average thinker, you know. You're a doctor. But it does take some effort, but I, I hope that the review itself and then some of the knowledge translation and education that um, I hope to do following this in the coming years will help to clarify it even more. Um, the title is obviously evidence for increased tone or overactivity of the pelvic floor muscles in pelvic health conditions. Was there any pelvic health conditions that had evidence of increased tone or overactivity in the end? Yes. Um, first of all, since you're reading the title, um, yeah. we, we used those terms overactivity and increased tone because that's where we started and that's where mm. my understanding was at the beginning of this three years. Um, and so when we registered this review, that was the title that we used, and that was also the, the terminology in the ICS reports. So um, the reviewers of this paper for um, the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology raised the question, do you want to change the title? And we decided to leave it because it's findable. That's how people are clinically thinking about <laughs> this stuff right yeah. now. Yeah, so we did we did find evidence of greater tone, and that was primarily in pain conditions, mm -hmm. mostly centered around vestibulodynia, vulvodynia. That was the majority of the female pain conditions. So and mostly with EMG, as the um, no, it was a mix of EMG right. and manometry and dynamometry. What is a vaginal dynamometer? <laughs> that's a good question um is it uh lori's doing some funky yeah, things well, with her hands it's basically <laughs> it's basically chopsticks oh, so, i was thinking wow. of it like a crocodile but yeah the chopsticks are better aren't they, they do look a like a crocodile has like a, a hinge point right like it's yeah oh yeah that's like true a it's crocodile not clip. So it's chopsticks, a, a speculum that looks like chopsticks, and it and it separates equally. <laughs> um, okay. There are there are some versions of it that separate in the way that um, Lori was talking about, where there's sort of a fixed point on one side, so it kind of hinges open like a crocodile mouth, <laughs> um, and it's going to push into um, sort of the deeper muscles more more specifically, whereas um, the dynamometer that was used in the cases of convincing evidence, um, pull apart equally. Mm. And so give a, a more general, um, sense of all the layers of muscles. So it provides that passive, um, that passive press into the muscle and we measure the resistance to that passive stretch. Ah, clever. Okay. Yeah. So in the vulvodynia kind of research, it seems like there is some convincing evidence to say yes the the higher resting tone the greater tone sorry the greater tone exists in this mm -hmm. cohort that's correct which is good news um in terms of thought. Uh, <laughs> in the clinic um, well yeah it's um 
in, in that it's good news in that <clears throat> clinically it it sort of aligns with our our theories and mm. what we're tr- attempting to treat, right? And so, is that was there anything to suggest that um, that particular cohort have higher active, greater active tone, or greater passive tone, or we're not able, we're not that good at fleshing out the difference between the two yet. Of the convincing papers for greater tone in um, vestibulodynia, um, there were three. There were three papers. Um, one was uh, by Evelyn Gentil Corsonier um, from 2010, and that paper was the only one that used EMG. Um, the other one was by Ingrid Nace, and they used manometry. And then the other one was by Melanie Moran, and that one used dynamometry. And what about the one that talks about paradoxical EMG in vaginismus? That also seems to be convincing enough to believe, yes? Yeah, so I think you're referring to the Frazon paper. Um, and that paper, um, they, they measured activity using a concentric needle, um, EMG. And that paper did a measure at rest, and it also did a measure um, during straining. And the only measure that we were able to pull out to be convincing was the one during strain. And that was because the EMG scale that they used, they didn't actually take the EMG amplitude data. They actually created a qualitative scale. Um, And the reason that the measure for strain was considered to be convincing is because it has face validity. So if you take somebody and you do EMG, run EMG on them, like in neurodynamics and they're peeing, so they're voiding and they have increased activity when you wouldn't expect it, that has face validity. So unfortunately we didn't get the rest data for that because it was a qualitative scale. Hmm. I have a I mean, really dumb question. That. I'm no, so sorry. It. Do it, Larry. I'm really dumb guys. Oh my God. No, it's not. Um, well, no, it totally is because in my mind, when we talk about tone, I automatically think resting tone. Mm. You're now talking about sometimes they measure it on strain. So this whole systematic review and everything we've talked about for the last almost hour, when we're talking about tone, are we talking about resting tone or <laughs> yeah. am I somewhere else? Yeah, that's you're a great talking about question. greater tone. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> increased resting tone or is this during activity or straining or I thought. Yeah, yeah, I know. So that's a really good question, Lori. Um, we we pulled out everything. Um, and so the what became clear to us when we looked at the convincing papers, they are all taken at rest. That is the most interpretable way to measure tone. When you start introducing function, um, it's a little bit less interpretable. And I know that a lot of clinicians really want to go toward, well, we want this to be in function. We want to see what happens in function because that's where somebody's actually getting pain, like actually when they're having intercourse, not when they're on our table and we're testing, right? Or um, when they're, you know, running, that's when they're getting their pelvic pain. And we suspect that's when there's tone there. But unfortunately, um, I think we're a ways off from really understanding tone 
in, in function, um, because there's a lot of different ways to interpret what we're seeing there. Hmm. But, but yeah, so I, I think you're right, Lori, the, the best way to measure it is at rest at this point in time and everything else is, um, a little bit more difficult to interpret. So, you know, there's no perfect measure, but I think the more measures that we do, we have a, a, a better story to tell. And so I think that's the way to sort of whittle away <laughs> at what we think the clinical picture is or the clinical story is. Did they use GH plus PB at rest then? Is that one of the, do you know what I mean, measures? Because for me, I do. <laughs> and if it's really short at rest, I'd be thinking, well, oh, that's probably greater, has greater tone. Um, I've not seen that as a measure um mm. like obviously we're just trying to with our gh plus pb in our minds we're measuring the levator hiatal area so did anyone do it with real-time ultrasound i mean there's plenty done on real-time ultrasound like levator hiatal area and other conditions yeah so anything in pain so so there are a number of measures digital palpation measures for um uh, like lateral flexibility. So there is, there is that, um, and, and levator hiatal area, we did pull that out for ultrasound. So there are those measures as well, but how in, interpretable the, the ultras. So ultrasound is an indirect measure. Um, it's not giving us direct measurement for the muscle, it requires a secondary interpretation in that we do the ultrasound and then we go do the secondary measurement. I think Melanie Moran's group is um, has done some work on the levator hiatal area and compared to, you know, other measurements of tone and seeing that, yes, when, you know, there's a, a narrower levator hiatus, there is also other measures that show greater tone. Hmm. You do this, Laurie, don't you? you? Yeah, but this is also yeah. where Maddie Pierre will come in handy when she comes on the podcast too, mm -hmm. because one of her papers she did with Melanie was on provoked vestibulodynia and the ultrasound measures and what represents tone and, but whether or not that was included in tone. It's, it's so cool that you found all these studies that are trying to kind of assess the same thing and have done it in so many different mm -hmm. ways. And mm -hmm. so then what we can take from these studies isn't, their answers and the conclusions they found sometimes aren't actually shouldn't have been the right answers or what they think they were looking at. They weren't actually looking at. Um, you know, I, I think an example of that is, uh, you know, relaxation after contraction. Um, well, there, there's a number of different examples of that actually, I would say. And, and yeah, I think we just have to be really careful and really understanding what it is where that, that we're measuring and what it means. Mm. not use it interchangeably necessarily that's right yeah. use the word greater tone <laughs> <laughs> and then write a story in your notes <laughs> <laughs> of what it all may mean but doesn't necessarily mean we also need to look up the raising scale yeah we do yeah we do <laughs> what um you know clinically then for the take-home messages I suppose you know, if we're in our clinic on Monday, I, what from now your probably, um, I guess, 
the one person that understands this research more thoroughly than anybody, what should we be doing clinically? I, I get your point around let's measure more things and understand what we're measuring. What would those things be? <laughs> um, well, I, I think that this, what I plan to do when I head back to clinic is to pull out the EMG more and have a look at that in comparison to my digital palpation or manometry um, measures. And just just have a look and and see. I, I you know, I think I think that EMG from a clinical perspective and the way that it's been taught thus far is to think about, well, even just the terminology biofeedback, um, I think it's really confusing. So, so biofeedback gets thrown around a lot. And I think we need to think about it as EMG assessment. And sometimes in that EMG assessment, we set up biofeedback targets, but it's still an assessment and then biofeedback treatment. And I think that's where things get a little bit confusing. So I think we need to look at our EMG assessment and then compare that to what our, um, combined measures are telling us and see if that helps us get to a better outcome for the patient quicker. And I know, I guess it seems, you know, like a really obvious thing, but as I said, and just going through this in the research, it's, it's not clear cut that that's what people are doing. Um, I I think again, it kind of goes back to us thinking about biofeedback as a, a treatment technique um, more so than an assessment tool. Um, so I will definitely be using EMG more. I will definitely be using the reasoning scale as a consistent scale. I will say that I, the reason that I'm using, I will be using the reasoning scale is because even though, you know, Melissa Davidson's data show that we're not very good at differentiating between the one plus two plus three plus is that from an an insurance standpoint where we need to show progress, (laughs) Um, in our notes in order to allow a patient to continue to have access to see us. Um, I think that that is important. Um, But, you know, the International Continent Society is suggesting that we just use the scale and we just say increased tone, normal and decreased tone. But if, if you start at increased tone and then the patient got a little bit better, then they're normal. And that may not be the case. Um, but I think that those two scales are transferable. In other words, if you if you start with a reasoning scale and it's a one plus, you can still say increased tone. If it's a two plus, you can still say increased tone. If it's a three plus, you can say increased tone. So I think that's the other reason that I prefer to use something like the reasoning scale because at, at the end of the day, you can say increased tone if if that's sort of the global going to be the global standard, right? And then I will be using more concise terminology. And if we can do that, then the problems that I described earlier on where, you know, sometimes you have patients from other clinicians coming through your door, then, then when somebody says, Oh, I think they have greater activity. I know they did EMG. Right. Mm -hmm. And if they say greater tone, then I can have a look and see, okay, was that manometry? Was that, um, you know, digital palpation, what, what was that and follow up in that, in that way. Um, I think that's more accurate and more concise. So 
I hope that helps. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, um, that's outstanding. I mean, I just want to get back into the clinic and try oh, all yes. these yeah. new things. I might stop writing <laughs> tone plus plus. <laughs> or plus 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 plus. We'll have... <laughs> yeah. Also writing asterisk, asterisks. Oh, your, your asterisks thing, Joe, man. <laughs> oh, anyway, we'll wrap it up there, Rachel. That was outstanding. Honestly, this is this is going to go viral, this one. Everyone's yep. going to love yep. it. Yep. <laughs> we, um, we'll say thank you on Laurie's behalf as well because she has um, she's giving you some sign language there. She's got some noise in the background. Mm. But lovely to meet you. Hopefully one day we'll meet you in the flesh. And thank you for doing such an epic study for us and helping guide all the clinicians around the world. Yeah, well, thank you, everybody. Nice meeting you. And thank you for your interest in this work. And um, yeah, hope to meet you all in person as well. Take care. Yay. Thanks, Rachel. (laughs) Take care.